Okay, so since this weekend is the Super Bowl, I thought I'd start with a football story. Is that all right? I mean, Steelers aren't in the Super Bowl, so who really cares about it? But 1959, a lot of you weren't even born in 1959, but 1959, several men met together to form the American Football League. How many of you remember watching games, the American Football League? Eventually, in 1970, the American Football League merged with the National Football League, and it all became the National Football League, and now there's American Football Conference and National Football Conference. But that's beside the story for this story. 1959, they met, and the guest speaker that day was a guy named Nicky Hilton. Uh, Nicky Hilton was, uh, was one of the owners and the family of the Hilton uh, Hotel Corporation. And the person who introduced Nicky Hilton introduced him this way. So this is Nicky Hilton, and, uh, and he has made $100,000 in baseball in the city of Los Angeles. Well, there was a lot of applause, and there was some expectation from these guys thinking about starting a league and being able to make some money. So when Hilton got up to speak, the first thing he said was, you know what, I, I, I've got to set the record straight on that introduction. First of all, I, I want you to know that introduction was not about me. It was about my brother, Baron Hilton. And secondly, uh, he, he didn't have a team in Los Angeles. His team was in San Diego. And third, it wasn't baseball. It was football. And fourth, it wasn't $100,000. It was a million dollars. And he didn't make a million dollars. He lost a million dollars. <laughs> it's always good to get the story straight, isn't it? You know, sometimes when we get the story straight a little bit, miss a little bit here, there, it doesn't matter that much. But when we want to tell the story of Jesus, when we want to share the story of Jesus, when we want to understand who Jesus is, now that's one story we have to get straight. Who is he? What he come to do? What's his, how do he accomplish his mission? And how are we to respond to that? So we're going to take the next several weeks... And we're going to immerse ourselves in the book of Hebrews, a fascinating, rich book in the New Testament. We put a lot of these passages on the screen, but I'd ask you to bring your Bible. Now, some of you may just use your Bible on your phone. That's fine. We know you won't be texting. You can check out your Bible. But whatever you read throughout the week, I want you to bring it because I want that to be in front of you, not just on a, not just on a weekend, but every day as you enter into God's presence through his word. We've spent some time over the last uh, several months in Genesis and in Exodus uh, setting up the Old Testament, and now we go into Hebrews that is just filled with the Old Testament, and we're going to see the theme of this book from beginning to end as that Jesus is the completer of it all. He's a founder, and he's a perfecter of our faith. He's the one who, who started our faith. He's the one who completes our faith. And he's the one who brings it to complete perfection. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, says it this way. Lay aside, the writer says, every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's the theme of the book. Here's what I want to do today. I want us just to get an understanding of the book of Hebrews. We're going to take like a 30,000 foot view of the book. Uh, We're going to do an overview. We're going to do an introduction. And then in the next weeks, we're going to drill down specifically as we go through the books. This is a book I would love for everyone here to just have down. Just know what's in the book of Hebrews. Again, a rich, rich book talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So we want to do three things today. Who's the author of the book? Talk about that. Who are the recipients of the book? And then third, what's the message of the book? What are we going to learn as we work our way through Hebrews? So the first question is, who wrote the book of Hebrews? And the answer is, we don't know. We have no idea. Most of the books of the Bible explain who the author is and who the recipients are right from the get-go. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God to all those who are in Rome. He tells us who he is as a writer, who he's writing to. James, a servant of God, of, of Lord Jesus Christ, to all the tribes who are dispersed through the world. James chapter 1, 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to all those who are in exile. Gives all the areas of the world that the Jews are, are dispersed, are in exile. That's the way no, letters normally start. But Hebrews doesn't start like that. In fact, Hebrews is more like a series of sermons that kind of looks like a letter at the end. At the end, there are some things that are, are a characteristic of a letter, but it's like a series of sermons. So what may have happened, remember, Christians... The early Christians met in the temple courts. Remember Acts chapter 2? Every day they met together in the temple courts. And it could have been, we don't know for sure, it could have been that the book of Hebrews was a series of sermons preached at the temple courts and then put together with a kind of a letter attached to the end and then sent to whoever the recipients are. We'll talk about that in a little bit. The best uh, explanation of the author uh, is found uh, written in some works by a church historian that lived in the third or fourth century, a church historian named Eusebius, and he's quoting an early church scholar that lived from 185 to 254 AD. And here's what the church scholar, Origen was a church scholar, and here's what he said. Who it was who really wrote the epistle of Hebrews? God only knows. And that's where we are. God only knows who wrote this epistle. I do have, I remember a story, a, a seminary professor told a story of a, of a seminary student who was studying uh, late one, actually early one morning, and uh, he uh, felt like he was enlightened, and as he studied Hebrews, he felt like he uh, got, a, got the word who the writer of the Hebrews was. So, uh, he called the, the seminary president, Dr. John Walford, at three o'clock in the morning. Not a good thing. And uh, he said, Dr. Walford, I just discovered who the writer of the Hebrews is. Walford was not humored at all. And the story is that that student did not last very long at Dallas Seminary after that either. So we just don't know who the writer is. But here's what we do know. This guy knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He was a student of God's word. He knew it well. And 
He knew how Jesus Christ was the author and completer of everything the Jewish people had been reading for all those years. And he was able to tie all that together. 29 times in the book of Hebrews, 29 times he quotes directly from the Old Testament. Most of the time he's quoting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. 29 direct verses that are quoted and 53 allusions to verses. So the verse isn't quoted verbatim, but you know it's coming from that verse. Eight times in his book, he takes a passage of Scripture and he gives a short exposition of that passage of Scripture. A lot of times it's Psalms that he drills down on and gives us an exposition. This guy was amazing in the Word. And we're going to see that throughout. Just amazing how he, inspired by God, but he is able, God uses his intellect, God uses his knowledge of Scripture, he is able to just put together all the Old Testament and how Jesus completes it. Again, fascinating book. Secondly, this guy knew the recipients well. He's going to teach them. He's going to encourage them. He's going to exhort them. He's going to look them right in the eye and sometimes tell them, you are way off base on this. He's not afraid to confront them. He's going to be very blunt with them. He's going to give them just what they need. He knows them well. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. He describes them first as being very generous. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in the serving of the saints as you still do. You are servants. You are generous. You, you, you help other people. So here are people who are very generous in their time and their talents and their treasures. Now, when I read that and when I think about that, I, I, I conclude that if you're generous, right, you're also going to be mature in your Christian walk. We always look at other Christians through our own eyes, right? And so if we're a person who we're a real prayer warrior, we say, if you're really mature, you're a prayer warrior. That's what it's about. If you're a person who loves to teach and you love to teach children, you can't imagine why everyone in the church doesn't teach children. <clears throat> if you're generous, the first thing you do, if you have the gift of generosity, gift of giving, first thing you do is look at the back of the bulletin, see where we are financially, and you're a giver, <clears throat> and you're wondering why people don't give like you do. Well, you can be a great prayer warrior. You can be generous. Be a great teacher. But kind of a solemn truth we learn in Hebrews is you can do all those things and still be immature <laughs> in your Christian walk. You, you can focus on certain things but not be mature in other things. And that's the second thing this writer knew about the recipients. They were immature. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. Generous, but about this we have said, we have much more to say. This is chapter 5, verse 11. It's hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing, you're just not getting it anymore. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you guys ought to be the ones leading the way, you need someone else to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who, love, who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. Again, he doesn't pull any punches. 
He says, you guys should be eating steak, but you're still on the bottle. You've become dull of hearing. You're generous, but you're immature. Now, here's another thing that kind of fascinates me about these recipients. They're generous, but they're immature, but they've been through persecution. I would think if you've been through persecution, that you'd be cranking it up, right, in your spiritual walk. But not not the recipients. Look at chapter 10, uh, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being, being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and inviting one. Man, you went through some tough times. You saw, you saw people persecuted. You saw the plundering of your property. You're generous, but still immature. The writer is going to show us one thing throughout this book. That pure doctrine, just having a head full of knowledge, does not equate to maturity. It's not about pure doctrine. It's about doctrine, what? Applied. And so he's going to talk about, you got the doctrine, but you got to love one another. You got the doctrine, but you got to do marriage right. You got, you got the doctrine, but you have to, you can't love money. You got the doctrine, but some of you are checking out a, a church, and you got to get back involved. There's a general principle that we see here, and it's this. If you're a teacher, or if you're interacting with other people, if you're a parent, you got to know your students well, don't you? The general principle of teaching is you have to know your students well. So if, you are, if you're here and you teach children, man, we thank God for you. And you, got to, you have to know the children well. C.H. Spurgeon said, he is no fool who can teach a child. It needs our best efforts. It needs our best studies. So if you're teaching the children and you're just looking over the, 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 the lesson on, on Saturday night before Sunday morning, because you can get by with that with, with kids, please find another place to serve. We don't want to fill a spot here. You're impacting lives for eternity. It needs your best efforts. You got to know how a kid thinks. You got to know what's going on in their life. You, you got to know. You got to know uh, the, the challenges that kids have if you're going to teach children. If you're going to teach youth, same thing. Someone who comes and says, "You know what? I want to volunteer for the youth, but I don't know a thing about social media." Time out. <laughs> Go do something else. Because if you're going to teach our youth, you better know about parents. You better know about social media. You better know about the popular apps out there. You better know about Twitter and Instagram and Reddit. And Reddit is probably an old one by now. I don't know what the new ones are. Probably a new one this week came up. But you've got to know that stuff. If you're going to interact with a group of people, you've got to get it. So you've got to know what the youth are going through. What songs do they listen to? What, to? what challenges are going on in their life? If you're going to teach, you've got to know people. How many of you are life group leaders? Okay? Life group leaders. You have the hardest job when it comes to teaching. My job of teaching is relatively easy. None of you guys talk back. All right? None of you say, hey, I don't think that's right. Well, you might think that, but you don't stand up and say it. So when I'm teaching up here, here's where I'm headed. Here's my goal. Boom, I'm right there. Life groups, a little different, isn't it? Here's your goal. 
But man, you got to meander everywhere in the world to get there. That takes a special skill. And you got to know your people well. It's not about dumping a lot of knowledge on them. Teaching a, a, leading a life group is not about leading a Bible study. You are facilitating a group to learn about Jesus Christ and apply that to a heart and a marriage and parenting and all the grandparenting and all the stuff going on in their life. General principle. If you're going to teach, you got to know your students well. When I was uh, right after Laura and I got married, I taught and coached for a year before we went to seminary. Laura was finishing up at Oklahoma State. And so uh, I, I taught sixth grade and I coached in high school basketball. Coach basketball in high school. So I had two brothers. One was a sixth grader. One was a high school basketball player. Well, the kid in my, uh, in my sixth grade class, he was a mess. His language was terrible, and he couldn't control himself. Stuff would come. He was always in trouble. His language would be coming out all the time. And sometimes he would be so mad that he would just, he would just freeze, sit there, and just start shaking. I wonder what's wrong with this kid. Well, one day we had a basketball uh, trip out of town, and... Uh, his brother, his older brother, who played basketball, forgot his uniform. So I said, hey, get in the car. I'll take you to your house. So I took, I, took, I took this kid to his house. Pull up. His mom's on the, on the porch. She starts yelling at me. I, I learned where Rotez learned his language uh, from his mom, right? And uh, his mom's yelling at me. His mom's yelling at the brother. And then some guy next door is yelling inappropriate things at the mom. And I said, oh, okay. Now I get it. When you learn what's going on in the life of a student, man, I, I never looked at him the same because I saw what was going on in his home. General principle, if you're going to be a teacher, got to know your students. So we don't know who wrote the book, but we know he knew the Old Testament inside and outside, front and back. He was able to tie the Old Testament into Jesus Christ as the author and completer of faith. And we're going to see that as we go through. Let's talk about the recipients. Again, we don't know exactly who they are. He doesn't tell us who he wrote to. We know a few things about them. One, they were a Jewish audience. They were Jewish believers. So they're, they're from the Jewish faith and they've trusted in Christ. And when they're in the Jewish faith and they've trusted in Christ, they got a lot of traditions. They've got a lot of baggage. They got a lot of rituals. Remember, early on, the temple, we do know that the book was written before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. August 29th, 70 AD, the Roman emperor sent his son in, Titus, and destroyed the temple uh, in Jerusalem. But to this point, it's still standing because the writer talks so much about the temple, he would have mentioned it wasn't standing anymore had it already been destroyed. And so the Jewish Christians, they're still going to the temple early on Early on, the, 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 the priests at the temple allowed Christians to come in and use the courts. Remember, Acts chapter 2, they met there daily. So, the, so these Christians still have the stuff going on. Here's the temple. Uh, you know, I know Jesus came, but I still got these rituals. And what about sacrifices? And, and what about all the Old Testament stuff? They're struggling with that. Some of you can relate, right? I won't mention any churches. But I have, I have friends in the community who say, I would go to the Bible chapel. But if I go to the Bible chapel, my, my grandmother would turn over in her grave. She would not believe I was there. I can't. I say, she's gone. She won't know. Yes, she will know. <laughs> she'll come back and she'll haunt me if I would do that. All those traditions we hold to, don't we? We hold to. 
And these Jewish believers, man, they were doing the same thing. We think this group was in Rome. And here's why. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Maybe they were in Rome. Let's just say it that way. Uh, Sorry, uh, Hebrews 13. Look at verse 23. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Rome, those who come from Italy, send their greetings. So, if there are those from Italy sending their greetings, it would make sense that the greetings are going back to Italy and the church there in Rome. Again, don't know for sure. We know they had experienced persecution. In 64 AD, Nero started persecuting the Christians. And so we've already read about that. They knew what it was like to have their house plundered. Again, the book's probably written around 68, 69 after the persecution started in Rome, before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. We've talked about the fact that they, they, that they showed signs of immaturity. And, and one of the things they did, uh, most people think that uh, the writer is not writing to the church at Rome. He's writing to a specific group of people with some specific issues going on. And one of their issues is this, they've checked out of church. They quit meeting. Look at chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another on, how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day of Christ approaching. So here's a group of people who said, you know what? I don't need church. I can do this thing on my own. I'm just going to pull out of the community. Um, happens today, doesn't it? I'm sure everyone here knows of someone who says, I'm a Christian. I just don't do church. This happened in the younger generation. I'm a Christian but I don't do church, it's full of hypocrites. Yes, it is. I'm a Christian, I don't do church, it's full of sinners. Yeah, it is. When I hear someone say, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church, then I just heard from someone who's making up their own theology. Because you cannot find in Scripture... A Christian who is not involved in a community of believers. The letters are written to communities of believers. So if you hear someone say, yeah, I'm a believer, I've trusted in Jesus, but I'm going to do this Christian life on my own, uh, i got to say, time out. let's, Let's really talk about who you trusted in. And if you trusted in him, are you going to do what he says? Because he said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to overcome it. Aren't you going to be a part of the community founded, started, commissioned, ordained by the one you say you serve? So that's an issue with some people here. That's what's going to be addressed as we go through this. We don't know exactly who wrote it. We don't know exactly who the recipients are, but this one thing we know. We know the theme of this book. This book 
from beginning to end, the theme is this, crystal clear, nailed down, Jesus Christ is absolutely supreme. Jesus Christ is it. He is supreme over all. Three things here. His authority is supreme. Here's the way the writer begins the book. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, he said, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the, check this out, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. You want to know what God looks like? Just, just look at Christ. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. His work is complete. He is supreme, the, 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 the creator, the sustainer of all things. He's supreme over all. He is better than heaven's best. He's greater than heaven's best. Look at verse 4. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent to those. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So the Old Testament believer thought highly, as they should have, regarding the angels. You go to the Old Testament and you see so many mention of angels and their power and their supremacy and their majesty. But the writer is saying, yeah, you got all that. You've got all that in your mind, but you got to know Jesus is way better than the angels. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than heaven's best. You know what else? He's greater than earth's best. Who would have been a significant figure in the Jewish mind? Moses, right? We've been studying him through Exodus. He's the one who led them, led them out, of, uh, out of Egypt. Every time they celebrated the Passover, they thought of Moses who led them out. Uh, scripture says that, that, that no one showed the power and majesty of Moses and all he did. Powerful man. But the writer wants to know, hey, Moses was a great, great man, but he was just a man. Jesus is greater than the earth's best. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Verse 5, now Moses was a, a faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, as we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus is greater. His, he is, he, his authority is supreme. His effectiveness is supreme. We're going to see that. I won't take time to look at this, but the bulk of the book, 5 through 10, the, the effectiveness of Jesus. He came to save us from our sins. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. It's not about the temple. It's not about rituals. It's not about traditions. It's about Jesus Christ and what he came to do. And then finally, his intimacy is supreme. This is the beauty of the book of Hebrews. Here's Jesus, he's greater than, and yet, man, he is a faithful friend who will never leave you, never forsake you. He always comes to your aid. 
whatever's going on in your life. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those being tempted. Anyone here ever experienced temptation in last minute? It's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. The sin is to give in to it. We've never experienced the full brunt of temptation, right? When temptation comes, we either give in to it, and let's be honest, some of those sins we enjoy, right? Scripture says they're enjoyable for time. They always have consequences. They're enjoyable for time. So we either give in to them, or we call on God's help, and He delivers us. But Jesus felt the full brunt of every temptation. He knows what it's like. So he comes to our aid. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what challenges you got. But I know this. Jesus is ready and waiting and willing and more than able to come to your aid and deal with any temptation you have going on in your life. He sympathizes with our weaknesses as well. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, and he's someone we can go to with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. One of the things we got to come to grips with as believers is that um, on our own, we're no match for Satan. On our own, we're no match for the flesh. On our own, we are no match for the world that tells us all these lies about what's important and what we should focus on. We're weak. And, and, and the sooner we admit that, the better off we are. But we have one who sympathizes with their weaknesses. There's a pastor of a, of a fairly well-known church. I won't mention his name. Uh, he just stepped down from uh, the leadership of his church. And uh, the Sunday he stepped down, uh, he spoke to the congregation. Listen to what he said. Leaders, he said, in any realm of life, leaders in any realm of life, leaders that lead on empty, don't lead well. And for some time now, I've been leading on empty. So I believe the best thing for me to do is step aside. And now, he said, more than ever, I need your prayers and I need your support. We've said that this church, that this is a church where it's okay to not be okay. And I'm not okay. I'm tired, and I'm broken, and I just need some rest. When I read that, I thought, people feel like that at the Bible chapel? Do they understand it's okay to not be okay? Or is this a place you got to come and act like everything's fine? I hope not. And if it is, we got a lot of work to do. Church is like a hospital, isn't it? It's where you go to get help. It's where you go to get strength. It's okay to not be okay. Now, it's not okay to 
continually stay not okay. That's where Christ comes in. He fixes our brokenness. He's there to help us. But it's okay to not be okay. When when we were in uh, Kingston, Jamaica this past week, I was preaching at a church, and I talked about, we were talking about the whole theme of the week was ignite the church, transform the world. And we were talking, I was talking about the fact that sometimes people don't come in the church because they're, they're ashamed of what they've done. Something's happened in their life. So they're ashamed, so they don't come to church, right? We all know those people. They're not okay, so the church is not a place to be. And so I had head nods and everything. And then after church, a guy came to me. He said, you missed one part of it. That's true. There are people outside. But there are also people who fall, and then they come back to church And when they come back to church, they get judged. And they get shamed. And they leave for good. So I just pray that we can be a church who says, you know what? It's okay to not be okay. And we want to help you get to the place that you need to be. Because we're all in the same boat. Jesus is the one who sympathizes with our weaknesses. One more. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Look at uh, chapter 13, verse 5. The the end of verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Don't know what you're going through, but Jesus himself gives you this promise, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we can say confidently, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. God is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Man, I know there are a lot of people at our church going through some challenging times. We just lost a great uh, servant uh, of the Lord, um, a man at our church, very active here, very active at the Washington uh, campus. Uh, John Taggart uh, passed away very unexpectedly. Uh, this week, and uh, just pray for the Taggart family. Pray for the, pray for the Jardine family, as uh, as they go through that. Um, memorial service after uh, church today for another family going through a tough time. I know you guys in Florida. Uh, I know you going through a, uh, an extremely uh, difficult time with uh, Pastor Stewart and, and health issues, and we're praying for you. We just got to remember, man, through all these times, some of them are tough. God, God, God says, I'll never give you more than you can handle, right? But sometimes it's on the line. But he's there. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. So when, that, when our son Garrison was little, um, he fell and cut his head. And uh, it was pretty bad cut in the back. And uh, it wasn't like an emergency situation, but we had to go get, get stitches. And so ran him out to the emergency room. And, and uh, I was with him there. And, you know, you, you never want the, those things to happen. But those are special times, right, with your kids when they're going through. And some of you have gone through much, much uh, more significant things than, uh, than a few stitches. But I remember being there in the, in the room waiting. And then finally we get back in and they put Garrison down on the table and his head was down, his face was down, so I could see the back of his head. They were going to put staples in it and 
He was fine. I was holding his hand. He was fine, but the doctors kept saying to me, are you okay? Are you all right? And I was fine. When I woke up, it was all over, and it's all done. No, I, 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 I didn't faint. Um, but I, I, thought about, I thought about that over the years. You know, there's a time when your kids are little, and you can, you can hold their hand, and you can walk with them. But boy, those times, they're gone, aren't they? They go fast. And now Garrison's grown and has a child of his own. He just FaceTimed him yesterday, playing with his little girl. And uh, I'm not there anymore. I'd love to be sometimes, but he, he grows out of that. Can't be there with him. But there's one who always can. Jesus Christ never leaves us. He never forsakes us. I just want you to know that. Jesus never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Theme of this book is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is greater than everything. I want to close by singing a song. Kirk is going to come and lead us here. A song I know many of you know well. Jesus, only Jesus. Just think of these words. Let these words be your your prayer as everyone stays in the room and we close together. Who has the power to raise the dead? Who can save us from our sin? He is our hope, our righteousness. Say it with me. Jesus, only Jesus. Who can make the blind to see? Who holds the keys to set us free? He paid it all to bring us peace. Jesus, only Jesus. Who can command the highest praise? Who has the name above all names? You stand alone, I stand amazed. Jesus, only Jesus. Let's stand and sing that prayer. Make this your prayer, supremacy of Christ, not just in one book of the Bible, but in your hearts, in your families, in your home, in your workplace. Jesus Christ is supreme.